Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. I hope you guys are all having a fantastic day today. I am really interested in this conversation I'm about to have with uh, a man that I've learned from and learned a lot from his father as well. It's just going to be a great conversation. In fact, if you have been with me for a while, a couple of years ago, I talked with John Eldridge about his book, Fathered by God, which was a repackaging of a work he had done previously called Way of the Wild Heart. And in that book, he does a fantastic job laying out stages of what he calls the masculine journey. And so as I studied that work, and as you guys have been hearing me talk about rites of passages and working with my boys on training them into manhood and working through these six stages or six virtues of Christian manhood, worship, work, protect, provide, lead, love, a lot of the origin of that really goes back to the, some of the conversations and stuff that I learned and, and heard growing up as a boy. So you heard that conversation with John Eldridge a couple of years ago, and then we get the flip side of this today. We are talking to his oldest son which is Sam Eldridge, and I have him here live with me today. Sam, how's it going, man? Good, Jared. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. It's good to be able to talk with you. Why don't we go ahead and pray and ask for the Lord's help, and then we'll just get right into it. Let's do it. Hey, Father, we just thank you so much for your grace and your kindness to us in Christ. Thank you for a brother, and I thank you for this technology to be able to have these conversations. And God, we want to honor you. We want the bullseye here to be the glory of Christ. And, and God, we just ask that you lead us in that. Holy Spirit, direct this conversation. And I pray to be helpful and profitable for people listening in. I know that people all have the same amount of time, but we give our time to so many different things. So God, I pray these next few moments for folks, this would be helpful and really challenging and encouraging to them. Uh, it's for your glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Sam, for those that may not be that familiar with you, why don't you go ahead and bring us up to speed. Tell us a little bit about yourself and then your family and then what it is you got going on, what, what you're doing. Yeah, well, myself, my family, what I've been doing. So we have, this is a three-hour podcast, right? That's I mean, right. Yeah, this is like Rogan totally style, man. Good, yeah. good, good. <clears throat> yeah, so I'm the eldest of three sons to John and Stacy Eldridge and grew up for the last 20 years has been really colored by their ministry, their work in the world. I think, I know, honestly, we're at, we're at the 20 year anniversary of Wild at Heart being written now. So uh, a lot of my childhood was and continues to be lived out in that framework, um, which I think is sort of unique to some and others. It was just kind of like having a famous pastor for a dad. I got really used to having my stories shared on stage. You know, if there was ever a, a learning or teachable moment that was going to be requested to be shared later. And so you kind of learn to go, okay, uh, where, where do we need to walk the line on um, <clears throat> rowdiness and behavior and all of that? Unfortunately, I think I grew up in a, a home that really blessed that and gave space for boys to be boys. So yeah. grateful for that and can dive more in that, that direction. I'm currently um, back in Colorado working for my parents' ministry. I've been here now for uh, seven, eight years. And I'm coming up on 10 years of doing this other side project called and sons, which was born out of really a hangout. I was um, with my brothers and my dad one Thanksgiving 10 years ago. And we were talking about uh, the longing for a certain content to exist online that didn't. So uh, we we're all 
college age at that time, dating or engaged, we're thinking about careers and going, man, where is like the, where's the, where's the articles on the things that we're asking questions about that this didn't exist. And so we set out to create it. So I've now 10 years down into, uh, it's called, it was called Ansons Magazine. Now it's called Ansons because we do, we did a podcast for years and film and all sorts of fun, creative projects. But the, the core of that is initiation and the young man's soul. And the premise is that it's not all up to us. So like, there's this quote that I love that the the teacher doesn't always have the questions. Sometimes the students have the questions, mm. but the students also shouldn't have to have the answer. So we might have some more of the questions that we want to be wrestling with. And then we would take them to sages, to our father, to our heavenly father, and try to find ways that we could begin to flesh out what is it like to become a young man of depth and integrity these days. Um so that was like a huge part of what I do. And I wrote a book with my dad called Killing Lions. So like this father-son conversation that we had. I mean, that was awesome. We can go, we can chase that if we want to. Um, got three kids currently myself now. So I'm in the thick of uh, young fatherhood and marriage. So man, I feel like I'm just kind of smack dab in the middle of it. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. There's always, it seems like in this stage of life, a lot of irons in the fire, a lot of really, really great things going on. And then (laughs) also the the discipline of trying to figure out, I know I need to, and got to grow in saying no and building out the schedule that's appropriate and healthy and godly. And, uh, and yet sometimes I feel like I'm juggling those irons, you know, (laughs) like the irons were in the fire and now I'm going to try juggling them. I got to put them back in. Right. Yeah. There you go. It's a lot of good stuff. Well, I also saw that recently you got back, I think it was an Instagram post or something. You got back from the woods. And so you went elk hunting, I think. So did you get, did you get one? Uh, no, didn't even see one. Um, but I have had the pleasure of hunting with my dad now for, for years. And I remember, gosh, a couple of seasons ago, probably five. Now I was able to harvest a, a cow elk and my dad and I were processing it and we're, we're caping it. And he looks over at me with his hands just covered in animal. And he goes, this is the cure for email. And he was so <laughs> happy to get out of the normal digital clean world and just go get his hands dirty. Uh, there are so many hunting stories that I have gotten to do with my dad. And so we were out last weekend and it was one of those like, right. I'm now 33. He's 62. Like it's very different than it it was before. And yet we're thankfully both super healthy and able to go out and freeze our butts off a little bit and do a little bit of armed hiking, see some beautiful sunsets. And, um, we used our binoculars a lot, but let me tell you, there's plenty of mule deer until it's mule deer season. And then they'll disappear too. Yeah. (laughs) That's how it goes. I was sitting in a stand last week and this is whitetail country where we're at Southern Illinois, we're five hours south of Chicago, but really all of Illinois is really good whitetail hunting. And in most places, you can be out of your bed and in a stand in just a matter of minutes. And in my oh, area, my it's like that. And so I was actually on at a nice eight, eight pointer, three and a half year old whitetail and just a, a, a low point in hunting because I drew back bow hunting and just 15 yards away it should be just a, everything's fine. Easy shot, you know, nail it eat some food, go back and process it, harvest all that kind of stuff, harvest and all that kind of stuff. Well, shot it in the liver. It was a pass through red blood, dark red blood all the way through waited. I didn't wait long enough, bump that deer out of there. 
And uh, no. so I know brutal. And uh, but today, actually, I went and got my my bow tuned in. And what I found out was I was shooting my arrow was coming out of my bow and I thought it was kind of wobbling a little bit. But mm. with my with my broadheads in, I was not shooting very good groups. And and so long story short, I got it paper tuned today and got everything lined up. So I'm hoping to be able to get the next time I'm sitting in front of a nice buck, I'm hoping, hoping to be able to get it down. So we will yes. see. So were you out there with guns or with bows? Wait, wait, no, Jared, what, what goes through your head when that happens? Cause that's like a classic hunter <laughs> moment of regret. Oh yeah. Condemnation, pain, God abandoned you briefly. <laughs> like what, what was going on for right. you? Then? Well, you know how it is when you're in, in the field, you're either fishing or hunting or whatever. And you're praying. I mean, your prayer life is just phenomenal when you're out doing those sorts of things. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Sp- yeah. Spending time mm-hmm. with the Lord and all that. Mm-hmm. I'm actually, I was with a buddy of mine who was, uh, it was actually his property and I have several different places now that I can hunt, but he was out there with me and we we're just having a good time, you know? And so this deer comes out and I, I hit it and it looked like a, I mean, it just looked like this deer was going to be down in 30, 40 yards, you know, around the corner, we're going to get down and we'll just see it and come get, you yeah, know, come back in an hour and get it. Well, it just wasn't that way, but I thought that was the case. And he said, man, you smoked that thing. So I'm texting my wife. I'm like, Hey baby, I just got one. I text my buddy, Brandon. I text my buddy, Drew. and like, Hey, dear dad, yes. dear dad. <laughs> You're like, I am a stud. Yeah, it's uh. like, oh man, I've got this deer. And we come back, you know, we go eat. We got a dog that came out with us. We always track a dog. And so we're out there. And with each passing minute, you know, I'm thinking, oh man, you know, already we've got a little girl at home as well. And so any hunting trip at this, and, and this really wasn't a trip. It was just uh, 45 minutes from where I live. But my both my boys were with me and my wife and daughter were at home. You want to maximize these opportunities, you know? So, I mean, you're, you're hoping yeah, that- no pressure, right? right no, uh-huh. no pressure, exactly. And I already got her hopes up. And so when I found out, you know, wait, we're going to have to come back in the morning. And I, and then the next morning when we didn't find the deer, it actually crossed a river and then the deer or the the dog lost the scent. And so, you know, we'd already prayed beforehand. And so I was in a pretty good place. It's just a weird, it's a weird downer because you run it through your head. Like, okay, God, what do you have for me in this? Because there, if it was literally an inch or half an inch to the right, it would have scraped those lungs and it wouldn't went through that little pocket that it has to go through right. to hit that liver. And, and so, I don't know, you just go through it and you trust the Lord. And, you know, I had a buddy of mine that encouraged me. He's like, Hey bro, in the end, you still have meat in the freezer. You still have food in your refrigerator. This is a hobby. You know, you can't let this, you got to show your kids and everybody, you know, you, you have to handle this well. And so yeah. I think, I think it did pretty good, but it, it was a, a huge bummer also. You know, I am all about expressing appropriate disappointment and loss for the, your sons, right? Like, yeah, yeah you're not starving, but that was a bummer. That yeah. sucks. And I was, I, I, but last winter I was reading through the Psalms as I like, was like trying to be, I think performing a little bit better. And I was like, this is so mercurial. He's mm. like, God, you're amazing. God, you've abandoned me. I'm going to die. Yeah. You've saved me. You're the best. I'm like, that's my hunting experience yeah. right there. That's <laughs> what true. it is. You're like, Oh, Man. there it is. I'm in, I got it. I'm initiating my sons. Here's the moment. i I didn't get it. It's yeah, gone. You've abandoned right. me. I'm I'm like the guy that did the bad shot. Like what happened? So true, man. So true. And that's how hunting is. You know, you get the highs and lows or you just think, man, this is, this isn't going to be the night. And in that very moment, you know, here out comes the bear or out comes the deer or out comes the turkey or whatever in that very moment. And then it goes the other way. And so there, yeah. there's just a, there's a discipline to hunting. So I didn't start hunting until I was 35. And it was something new for me. And when I, I got into it, it was kind of like, man, I, where's this been my whole life? And mm. I did grow up in, the, in a little bit in the country and hanging out in the woods and that kind of thing. But we weren't really an outdoors family. 
And uh, when my sons came along, I realized, you know, I've, I've, there's some, you know, there, there's some uh, goodness to this that I want them to experience. And, and I had a guy at, at our church in his sixties and he said, why don't you come out this year and go hunting? I, I mean, I had to take my hunter safety course. I hadn't taken my hunter safety course ever. Yeah. And he showed me, the, totally. show, showed me the ropes and, and brought me the whole, through the whole thing. And it's been incredible, but that's how mm-hmm. it goes. You know, it's these ups and downs and and then the discipline of being consistent, even when you hit those moments is, uh, is really, cause you know, in that moment, I thought, you know, I'm done bow hunting this year. Forget this. I'm done. You know, yes. Uh, right. I'm going to sell this. I'm going to pick yeah. up a new hobby model yeah. trains. That's, that's right. for me. Yeah, exactly. But then, you know, you get on the other side of that a couple of days and then the motivation comes back. It's like, okay, there's some factors that played in. I still want to do this. I'm not abandoning this. Uh, I just got to, I got to get better and, you know, and, and have a lot of fun with it. Even when I, you know, even when I fail, because it, you know, those failures are teaching opportunities, obviously. And uh, I mean, that's how life is. So, but my first five times in a stand, I killed three deer. So for our whole family, we were, we were like, you know, this was the expectation. Like you sit in a stand, yeah, you kill a deer. I mean, that's, right. I mean, it's just simple, you know, it just one like plus one equals two. Yeah, exactly. I don't know why this is so hard. Exactly. And then last year, man, I went out so many times and didn't get anything and yeah, missed some yes. really good ones in my, in my yard even. And, <laughs> and so, you know, it's just a discipline oh. of, of, you know, keeping your head up, keeping going and, you know, not getting, letting it bum me out too much. You just, you know, keep going, keep getting better. We had the opposite experience. Our, ours was like, we didn't get anything for the first nine years. Oh my gosh. Like we put wow. in years and years and miles and we were in this janky part of Colorado called Pitkin. There's no way any of your listeners are from there because approximately two and a half people live there and okay. they're both mean. And like, this was a place where the record bull was harvested two days before the season started. And the guy shot it and put it down a mine shaft and then pulled it back out when the season oh. had started and took it to the, like, I'm sorry, the rigor mortis at that point, the meat quality, like it was mm. very obviously poached. And we we're like, this is, it's kind of a wild sport we found ourselves in, huh? Right, right. Yeah, I can imagine the the pool if you see a big bull walking by you and you've got a tag in your hand, but it's two days till season. I mean, the yes. the discipline that's required to, to know, say no. Um, mm, yeah. But uh, this guy did not have that discipline. Yeah, apparently not. <laughs> I'm sure he got a big fine and, and a, a big, uh, big hit in his wallet to show yeah, the, that's true. the problem of poaching. Okay. So let's switch gears a little bit. A lot of fun stuff. Uh, obviously we, we've already introduced some of the things about your dad. One of the things that, um, the book father by God, and we're going to be talking a little bit about this as we go through this interview. Uh, one of the things he had said in there is he was lamenting the fact that his age. And so he, he and my father are about the same age and the, the men in the church that I grew up in, I grew up in the church and uh, my mom was a children's church director. I became a Christian at five had positive peer pressure growing up and, and really great buddies, all my best friends. It was really just an, an ideal situation to grow up in. And God did a really great work. Mm. And uh, the, the group of men at the church, God really got a hold of those guys and they wanted to do a better job. They were the kind of classic guys, a, a boomer guy that had a, a, a father that didn't show him he loved them, didn't care about them in practical ways and worked really, really hard. So that, that kind of era, if you just trace the big eras of, of manhood in the last 150 years, they were very much guys that jumped on the father wound stuff that your dad wrote and all of that. And they all experienced that. Well, one of the things your dad laments in that book is he said, who's going to initiate these guys? Like these are unfinished men. Mm -hmm. Who's going to do this? Because we don't have fathers that really want to pour into these guys. And we're all grown up now. Like who's going to initiate these guys in this process? And his aha moment is, wait a minute, we're fathered by God. You know, God is the one that's initiating us. And in fact, for me, 
you know, the sovereignty of God has been such a huge piece of my life over the last 15 years. And thinking about God, the sovereign judge or ruler of the universe was one thing. But then to, to, to shift a little bit to this relational aspect of God as our, as our sovereign father, it was, it, was, uh, it was stepping from justification, not away from justification, but stepping into justification, into adoption. And, and experiencing mm. this, uh, you know, the, the justification and adoption go together. Uh, it's not e- an either or or one or the other, but stepping into that and realizing God is sovereign. So you're on this other end and I'm reading the book, Father by God and wondering, okay, how is this practically? Is there trying to be intentional? Now, this next generation, not only has God fathering them, but now they actually have fathers that are fathering them. Right. So he's giving you things. And, and you know, those stories your dad talked about, you know, I remember and have even used the line, you know, Sam, God made you strong, not to harm your brother, but to protect your brother. He made you a protector. I remember that story and have shared that even to my boys that God has built you strong for a reason. So for mm-hmm. you, your, your dad is, is like every other man. He's not a perfect man. And I, I don't presume to think that your, your you know, household growing up, that there was nothing that could have been done better or, or anything like that. But you did have a dad that was very intentional in raising you through this process of initiation. So I'm just right. curious in a, a big picture, you know, you used the word 30,000 foot view earlier uh, before we were starting recording. So like the, the big picture here, looking down, what was childhood growing up for you like growing in, in a household where really your dad and his buddies are discovering all these things or rediscovering these things and wanting very practically to implement them and apply them into your life? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, I think that we talked about hunting before this. <clears throat> actually, it ties in really nicely because if you look, those guys were all first-generation hunters, a lot like you, and that they didn't have these men to initiate them. They didn't have these men to father them or go after these father wounds. And that just sort of like a blanket statement across the page. <clears throat> so I remember growing up in my home, a lot like with hunting, there, there were ways that my dad was trying to figure out how fathering was meant to be coming from the vacuum of his own personal experience. So trying to pull in, okay, God is his father. God is my father. He is going to be intentional. He's going to be trying to create these rituals that he saw were needed in like in boyhood. He wrote about them and fathered by God, um, the way of the wild heart. It, it did a vision quest year when I was 12, 13, but that also something like that kind of hey, you're becoming a young man now. They can't exist in a vacuum. They can't be like, hey, now dad and son are going to go off and do this camping trip or go do a solo day in the woods. You're going to go do this. This uh, we, we climbed the Grand Teton is like the, the final challenge. That all doesn't get to exist if there isn't already like the subtext of relationship. Mm-hmm. So there was the trying to figure that out in real time. And as I've reflected back and I am super... I am profoundly grateful for the home I got to grow up in. And you're right. You named it. He, he was not the world's first perfect man. That was Jesus. And nobody else on this side is able to replicate that. We are meant to become more like him. But I found myself going, oh, I can breathe a sigh of relief now as a father who received that kind of fathering. You get to build on the grounds that they have laid and stand on their shoulders. And also, you can't be perfect. He wasn't perfect. I won't be perfect. There is many ways that the father heart of God towards us gets to make up for that lack. Mm. So I watched him also model that. There's the story you shared of him calling out what my strength is for. I talked with another guy about a different story where there's some bully and, and standing up for ourselves was, was, was okay. It was like, hey, you actually have a strength. I want you to be 
able to offer that on behalf of others. And then he would model his lack for us. He would model the like, guys, let's let's pray and listen and see what the father has for us because he didn't have all the answers. He didn't, mm-hmm. he didn't want to have all the answers. And I felt like that balance was perhaps the most um, healthy. Mm-hmm. We talk about in the in the counseling world that the good enough parent is actually the best. That the the parent who is the perfectionist and the parent who is absent can both mess up a kid profoundly. Mm-hmm. But it's the parent who is willing to be kind of messy and apologize for when there is messes and strive to be better. That's actually the best scenario that you could hope for. And to me, that feels really hopeful as a parent now myself. I'm like, oh, great. Okay. Uh, all right. You got John Eldridge as a father. You got to nail this thing. You got to show everybody you just hit, all you hit is home runs. That's like, well, let me tell you, I, I lasted about 30 seconds with my patients when we had our first kid. I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh, 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 this is very revealing. Okay. Yes. Yes. So very now, much so. now what? Yeah, that, that's that's helpful. And I think in the context of that relationship and, and then the process itself, if there is only the process, if there is only the ceremony, if there isn't that relational element there to where you really do see uh, the honesty, the a man that's a father that's striving after the Lord and, and wanting to honor him and what he does, uh, who's not perfect, but um, but if all there is is the ceremony and the process without the relationship, well, then there's going to be a major disconnect there. Then in the oh, process, yeah. it's going to go so sure. bad. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things I think about with my boys and think about the ceremony and, and years ago, I read a book that was kind of a complimentary book to your, one of your dad's works, but it was, uh, it was called uh, raising a modern day night. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's kind of dated in, in some ways uh, it's, it's cheesy if you read it. And yet there's so much there that's helpful. And I think it was written 97, 1997 is when that book came out. And he talks about the different ceremonies. And I've always wondered, like, what did the sons think about that? Like, you know, Mm. it it sounds really awesome. And yet, as I'm thinking about with my boys and and trying to know them personally, and my sons are different sons are both strong willed, you know, we didn't, you know, Dobson said, you're supposed to have a strong willed child and a very compliant child afterwards. We have strong willed, strong willed, strong willed. That's just how it is. And uh, Uh, what did he know? Yeah, I know. Right. (laughs) Dobson, come on. Um, So with this ceremony or that uh, you said when you were 12, whatever it may be, um, mm-hmm. you know, for, for you, did you, because you had that relational aspect, was it something that it's like you you're holding on to and like, this is something you want to replicate now. Is this something that you want to do for your sons, this kind of intentionality or, or is it, that was incredible for me, but maybe not. I might not do that for yeah. my sons. Yeah. Yeah. I find myself going, okay. Yes. And when I think about the things that my parents did well, I would say I want those things first, and then I would build on them to those specific moments. So the first thing is that they did well. They they genuinely conveyed that our hearts mattered. How are we doing today? What was going on with us? Like what? How did a a friendship ending did that did that matter as much as a camping or hunting trip? Um, did we have the did they have time to slow down and interact with us? So that was huge. What was conveyed mm-hmm. at that like day in day out was that we mattered and then the second thing that i felt like was really important was that they were the same people regardless of what they were doing so if they were writing a book if they were on a television show if they were on a stage or if they were at the kitchen table there was consistency and as children we are more aware of our parents sometimes than they are of themselves mm-hmm. because our our safety and survival is dependent on them and them being consistent and reliable and safe and so we were very aware of like, is dad going to be the same man when he's on a television show as when he's taken us to school? 
And I'm grateful to say that he very much is and mm. was. So that was the groundwork that I'm like, yes, I want to be like that. And that made the specific moments, like the the ceremonies, like we're going to go do this together. This is a big deal. Uh, I think that made me more willing to enter into them because I trusted him. Mm, okay. Yeah. And there were these things that I look back on now and go, um, my, my wife says one of the first things that drew her to me was a sense of confidence that like, I just kind of walked with some level of assurance. And I would point to many things that contributed to that, that I would like my children to also have those moments would be one of them hmm. being embodied. Like my dad did karate. He was like a black belt when he was a teenager. So he had a punching bag for us in the living room as kids. And we would, you know, like six, seven, we'd be doing our punches and <laughs> he wanted us to like, be okay in our own bodies. He wanted us to experience different things, hunting and going to the rodeo and at least watching him try to fix his old Jeep Wagoneer, which was constantly (laughs) providing opportunities to be fixed. So I don't think I I walked away from those moments where I'm like, perfect. I am now a master mountaineer, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't the, that wasn't the point at all. The point was like, Hey, you have depth and strength and the ability to do these things should you want to? Mm-hmm. And I look at that and go, yeah, if I can marry all those things, I could create an environment where I know that my children know that they matter, that dad is going to be the same person all across the board. And then I get to invite them into ways where they can feel confident and assured. Mm-hmm. Oh, heck yes. I want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's good, man. That's good stuff. Okay. I want to shift gears again and want to think about, okay, primarily I'm having you on here and I've learned from you, but you've had to navigate so what some people would call a shadow of your dad. Mm. Um, and, and I want to kind of frame it up like this, a, a legacy rather than a shadow. Okay. That there's a legacy that we all want to build as fathers, you know, is we want to mm-hmm. be these patriarchal men who honor the Lord and love the people that are under our care and love our wives well. And, you know, with our children, we, we just want to be godly men and humbly walk before God and others and, and just be godly men wherever we go and whatever we do. And we want that with the Lord's help to build some sort of legacy within the faith. And you and I grew up in an era, uh, I'm 39, you're, you said you're 33. So we're somewhat in, the, in that same age range, but in this era where everyone forges their own way, nobody mm-hmm. does what their father did ever. Like you, I, I remember, and my listeners have heard me say this before. I remember there was this guy in high school and we were all rattling off what we were going to do. And I'm going to go off to college down in Tennessee and somebody else, I'm going to go do this or that or whatever it may be. And he's, he kind of hangs his head in disgust and says, I'm going to work with my dad, you know, and, and we're all like, man, you are a loser. I mean, what in the world you're going to work with your dad? Well, what we didn't know is that his dad owned an HVAC company. Right. And by the time this guy was like 26, he would be owning this HVAC company, probably making 250, $300,000 a year. Right with some freedom and liberties that none of us had. And he probably was making 80 grand a year when he was 19 years old. And, you know, we were all the dummies, you know? And uh, one of the things that I, you know, I think, uh, you know, I I would have done differently if if I was able to counsel a younger man is like, man, look, look at that. And Mm -hmm. there is glory in following the work of generations and building Mm -hmm. on the work of generations. And it's not a shadow overshadowing you or your personality it is a tremendous gift from the Lord that you would walk in this sort of family heritage and lineage. And so mm-hmm. for you, how have you had to navigate that growing up in a generation that says, find your own way, forge your own way, walk away from the work of your dad, your mom, get your own, you know, you're your own man. 
kind of thing. And then yet here we are talking in this interview, I'm talking to Mm -hmm. Sam Eldridge, but we're talking a lot about your dad and I'm trusting that you can handle that, that you're not walking away. You know, (laughs) everybody just wants to talk about my dad, you know, kind of thing. How do you navigate that? How did you navigate that? Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate the question and the framing of it. Um, When you share that story of the guy that goes, I'm going to go work with my dad. I imagine there was laughter in the moment. And I wonder if after the fact, there wasn't some longing and curiosity to that, like, wait, that Mm. for so many people isn't even an option, let alone a desire. Mm -hmm. So if it is a desire, it it might not even be on the table. And then that it was profitable in a trade, like, oh my goodness, that just go, there's actually probably many people 10 years down the field that go, I wish, I wish, (laughs) huh? So for me, it was an absolute journey. I mean, when I was um, 18, there was a lot about the ways that I I loved the world that was similar to my parents. So they were both actors. They met in the theater in high school. And so our family has always been super dramatic. We're very expressive. My face is going to be riddled with wrinkles in another 10 years because we just use our faces all the time. We love story. My dad would read us books. My mom would read us books. Like not only as children, but as, as young boys in the at bedtime. So I love, I, I see the world through story. I see the world through expression. And so I found myself going, huh, I like a lot of the same things that my dad and mom like. I see the impact of their walk with God and the ways that it can affect families for the better. As a boy, I'd watch and go, hang on, here's grown men that are weeping and experiencing Jesus for the first time. Here's families that are being healed. And I'd be like, well, I just empirically there's goodness in it. What do I do about that? That I seem to have a natural desire to do similar things. And I'm in a culture where it's like, dude, what are you doing? Absolutely not. You need to go and become a YouTuber. You need to like create your own way. The American dream is still very strong and the uh, abandonment of everything that came before also feel feels very strong. So I felt the need to like go out and reinvent the wheel. It was like, if I'm ever going to write, I'm going to use a pseudonym. I'm going to use a pen name. I'm going to, I'm going to do very similar things, but I'm going to divorce myself from my heritage because that's, what's more noble. And I was actually on my honeymoon. We did um, a month in Asia and partly because my brother-in-law lived in Malaysia at the time. So we went, my wife and I are big adventurers and explorers. So we were backpacking around. And then towards the end of the trip, um, we connected with my brother-in-law so he could show us stuff and drive us around and we could hang out with him. And uh, I had a conversation with him one time wrestling with all this where I was like, I can't, I don't think I can go there. I've got this offer to write this book. Um, I've got, there's all these things brewing, but I don't think I can do them. And he looked at me and he's like, what's the matter with you? The kingdom of God is a kingdom. It is a range in such a way where their inheritance is a real thing. Building is a, is a real thing. We are meant to lock shields and create and contend for each other. Like what we think that we're just like all just pure anarchy and chaos. Mm, and you have yeah. to you get to build nothing. And then your children again, start all over. Like that's just, he was kinder, but it did feel like I needed some of that almost like verbal yeah. slapping. I'm like, hey, come get on, man. Together, you yeah. are elastic girl. I was like, okay, right. Ah, sorry. So I came back from that and was like, I I had to embrace a season as a young man that felt like eating humble pie for breakfast. I'm mm-hmm. like, really? What I want is to go like write my name on something. And what I'm gonna do instead is admit, dad, what you do is amazing. And I'd love to learn and I'd love to be a part of it in the ways that I can. And I recognize that my friends are going to go, what a sellout. I'm like, Mm. you don't understand. Like 
there is a weight to it and there is a wrestle with that. Do you just disappear? And I've had, I've had those conversations, Jared, like I've mm-hmm. had plenty of them over the last 20 years where like, they don't care about me. Mm-hmm. They want to know about the guy behind me. Yeah. Um, that's just, that's real. Mm-hmm. But there has, there's been enough, um, I would say to, to push in that legacy direction to go, Oh my goodness, look what I, look what I have the, the honor of getting to be a part of for however long a season. Like, yeah, it's, right. That's good. Well, I mean, I think that for, for me, and again, I've referenced my audience three or four times now, they, they've been with me on this journey and even thinking about eschatology and what I do every week, I told you a little bit before we recorded, but I do monologues, which basically is just a, about a 15 to 20 minute uh, word for pastors. And sometimes I'll get into some theological stuff that uh, maybe a series or something like that, but they've heard me develop my eschatology over the years. And we, mm. I think probably have differing eschatologies, but thinking long-term I, in developing a post-millennial understanding of the kingdom of God being present in our midst and thinking that, you know, what if Christ tarries for, you know, uh, several hundred years, several thousand years, um, you know, certainly he can come back tomorrow. Praise the Lord. I would love that. But what if we're still in the ages of the early church? And those questions that i had been asked or heard asked by other people got me thinking like, huh, I, you know, I, I always have lived in the light of what can be done in just with my generation before I live and die. Mm-hmm. And I grew up thinking, you know, I want to be a pastor of a massive church. I want to do travel ministry and preach to thousands of people. And I want to do all this stuff. You know, after all, we got to start a movement. We can't just start a faithful assembly somewhere. We got to be a part of this massive thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's what I grew up in. That's what I, that's what I wanted to see. And I certainly see God working all around us, but thinking long-term then of God, what would you do then just through faithful obedience one day at a time that can be passed on to my sons and my daughter, and then Lord willing down through their generations and seeing you work and expect that my kids are going to walk with the Lord, every one of them, and expect that every single one of my grandkids are going to walk with the Lord and then just see what you would do. And it changed everything from thinking, God, what am I going to do for you kind of thing to mm. what's going to go on? And, and man, I would love just a small piece of being able to see from one generation to the next what's happening in your family down through the the, the generations now into you and then into your family. Oh, my gosh, man. It's just incredible mm. seeing that legacy develop and see God work in that way. It's just incredible. Yeah. I mean, here's here's a very real thing I had to wrestle with um, as a as a son. What is what is enough? Right. We all are going to respond to our parents, good parents, bad parents. Um, but I would look at my dad and go, oh, what is enough is becoming another John Eldridge. Mm. For a long time, I thought like becoming enough is that like whatever, however many books he's sold, that's I have to do the same thing in order to be enough. Right. Got to have the stage. Got to. I know. Right. So <laughs> therefore enter depression and crushing hopelessness, because how are you going to do that? And then the shift becomes like, actually, can you be enough if you are a good husband a good mm-hmm. friend a good father mm-hmm. if you if you touch a handful of lives and as a part of me it's like i used to say you know as long as i change one person's life for the better that is not true i would be done doing a good job now because like mm-hmm. one person yeah. Yeah, it, maybe some people feel that way i think we're we actually affect a handful of people at the very least and mm-hmm. what would it what can you be enough if your legacy is your wife, your kids, your grandchildren, 
and the effect that your lives, you're, if you're led on a hill, everybody's looking at that actually more than your Instagram page of, Hey yeah. man, this guy's got a million followers, man. He must have get like the primo seats in the kingdom of God. It's like, really? Maybe. Mm-hmm. But we've also seen we're at the day and age where the skeptical goggles are just on and we're just waiting for it all to crumble. We're yeah. Like, okay. You're like that on stage, but when's the affair happening? When's the mm-hmm. blow up happening? Are you, yeah. how, how deep does that run? And what if actually the core of you is substantial and everything else is a byproduct of that? Yeah. Man, I tell you, it is uh, building households and watching God work and build the kingdom in front of you, doing his work, not building the kingdom with the strength of our hands, but watching children grow. And we have a, a church that's full of young families. And I think every single one of the families is homeschooling now, like literally everyone. And everyone's doing family worship at home. And they're doing a great job. It's just awesome to see. And that impact of taking what's, you know, is a priority and being authentically, uh, a God honoring man in all areas of life, not just publicly, but privately as well. Is there's such glory in that. And I think, uh, man, it's amazing what God can do, you know, in and with that. So how are you doing, man? Like you're, I heard you're, are, so are you, so I know the Anson's podcast ended. So yeah. how, how podcasting's are, hard, Jared. I don't know if you've noticed, but it, it takes a toll. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does. I've got, I've got several podcasts that, that I work with and do. And my wife does a show that does really, really well whole lot better than mine and so the editing and then sermons every week so i'm like editing all the time you know i just feel like it's just always editing and putting podcasts out so having you know several different hats with podcasting can be difficult but you've got all these iron, irons of the fire so are, are you happy are you enjoying the lord are you enjoyed your family are you enjoying your work how are things going just with you know you got all this public stuff going on even with the Anson's magazine and you had the yeah. podcast that was a yeah. i'm sure broadly listened to you don't have the podcast anymore but how are things going man you doing well um yes and i would say we are doing well there's a lot of really good things that we get to do um and sons is still a huge part of my time um my family is a big part of my time writing we've actually been recording some different um podcasts and video content it's like it's it's great it's awesome awesome. and we also have had to reconcile like we live in like this post-covid cultural moment where i think most people i would say feel pretty exhausted and are trying to look for ways of like, what's the answer to, um, uh, most people I know look like they're burnt out. Hmm. And there are days where I feel burnt out as well. And then what? Like, Because I've noticed what we try to do is we slap a modicum of different um, medicines on, sometimes some combination hmm. of sugar, alcohol, caffeine, uh, nicotine, whatever it is, whatever like the answer that we try to, to soothe it with. And man, my, my choice today so far has been sugar. Somebody left a bunch of <laughs> cookies on the counter downstairs and Uh-oh. I've eaten half of them. And it's that, that that's my yes. And we're really, we are well, and we love, I love Good. that my life is um, at the core. We believe that people are pretty good at seeing through the act. Mm-hmm. So if you aren't living it, other people are going to pick up on that really, really fast. Whether that's like as a Christian or as a, as a father, like if, if you're not actually doing well and being honest and pursuing growth, everybody else is going to pick up on it maybe before you do. So just be, be, be honest. And so that, that thus why I mentioned the, uh, it does seem to be a pretty exhausting moment these past few years. And Mm. I think that's, that's on the forefront of my mind. Like what does my family need? What do I need? What are the people that I'm called to offer for needs to feel 
well mm-hmm. and balanced and and like there's margin and we're not just running on fumes hoping to coast into the next gas station yeah well we've talked a lot about the things i was hoping to cover and then some but i always lead up to the end of the interview and ask a question and i want to point people to god's grace and so i always ask one question to the people i interview and that is sam eldridge why do you love jesus so much mm. I love the C.S. Lewis quote that he's like the sun because not only do I see him, but by through him, I see everything else. Everything else seems to fall into place. Um, I love Jesus because he is uh, personal, relatable, aspirable. I've experienced him in, in ways that I, in moments of doubt, I have not been able to walk away that he will dog my heels through my whole life. And um, I, I have told my story in the past and said, without him, there is nothing. Mm. Yeah. Yes. And amen. He's pretty great, isn't he? Yes, he is. <laughs> All right, folks. Thanks so much for listening in. I would love if you would please subscribe, share, uh, and leave a rating or review on iTunes if you so choose. And for more information, you can go to the shepherdscrypt.co 